Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Daily. This episode features Sean Berry, co-leader of the Green Party. And it's a brilliant chat, not just about the Green Manifesto in this election, but how Green movements try and influence not just the powerful, but the public. The differences in approach between the Green Party and, say, Extinction Rebellion and all the other things you'd expect us to talk about. And maybe a few things you didn't. Um, I won't say any more because I know you'll listen to this every day and I don't want to keep you for any longer on your commute or your bath or wherever you listen to this on the bus. Um, so I started by asking Sean how the campaign was going for the Green Party. It's very exciting so far, the campaign. I mean, actually, we've we've made it the climate election. I say we as in the the movement and, and the Greens for being so bold with our policies. Um, I think at the, the beginning of the campaign, we put forward our Green New Deal. Everyone was quite taken aback by the fact that we pro- proposed to put in £100 billion a year of investment for 10 years, which if you add that up is a trillion pounds. Um, and they've looked at it all the all the commentators have looked at it and they've said actually yes this is probably what's needed and actually it's probably affordable and it will pay back and I'm very proud of the fact that we were so bold about that and the fact that it's withstood all the scrutiny that we've had so far uh, the other parties are putting forward lesser amounts of investment in green stuff and so again we've been able to challenge them and I think that's really the role that the greens play when we get elected but also it's it's great when it works out during an election because it really pushes the window there's a lot of scrutiny on people candidates parties during elections and if we can get in at that point it's 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 a proper success for us um a lot of people are calling it the brexit election though um is that a problem for you or is it an opportunity well there are these two things and they're they're interrelated obviously being in Europe helps us to um, sort out environmental regulations it helps us to act on an international basis so there's there's a lot of overlap Um, obviously one is a a more short-term thing that we have to sort out and I don't want to call Brexit too short term um, because the the messaging from the Conservatives is it can all be done by the 31st of January and that's nonsense it'll be years of, of more wrangling before we get to the end of anything even if we exit quickest way to sort it out is to to people's vote it and uh, and and remain um but then climate change is this 10-year plan that if we don't start in the next couple of years we we can't complete so these things are both very very urgent and almost equally um vital election issues and obviously we're on the right side of both of them so again it's it's very good to be a green in this election do you, are there many green Brexiteers? Uh, do, you, do you encounter any voters that say, actually, I'm a, I, I'm a green to my core, I'm an ideological green, but I think we should leave the EU and I'm not keen on this people's vote stance? There's a handful. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's more, a handful, that dismisses it a bit. We had a vote um, in the party about which stance to take and it was 90% in favour of uh, campaigning for Remain and staying in the EU. If you survey voters, Green voters are more Remain than, than any other party, okay. even the Lib Dems. Yeah, um, right. But there are some, and the, you know, there, there, there are arguments um, on, on both sides of Brexit. Um, it's just that when you do the balance, it comes out massively in favour of staying in the EU. 
And just in terms of climate change and the environment as a, as a political topic, before the election was called, obviously Brexit is, is just dominating everything. But you've been well ahead of the curve as a party, of course, who've formed to, to protect the environment. With the work of uh, with Extinction Rebellion this year, it does feel that actually the, 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 the country is talking about the climate more and more. Just in terms of Extinction Rebellion, how much do you coordinate with them or are they completely separate from you? They're, they're absolutely, I mean, they're separate from, from each other as well. They're not a hierarchical organisation with leaders. So um, very much it's, a, it's quite a dispersed movement of people. Um, like Al-Qaeda. No, like 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 a lot of green organisations are, in fact, um, non-hierarchical um, you know, people who who act on on the basis of an issue rather than um, on the basis of an organisation. And some people find that hard to understand, but it very much fit, fits in with green philosophy. But remember that the the thing that kicked this off wasn't um, activism on the ground; it was the report from the IPCC that said uh, effectively that aiming for for two degrees um, as the Paris Agreement does. Two, two degrees of warming um, is probably going to result in runaway climate change. Uh, we need to aim for 1.5 degrees. And unless we, we really, really steeply reduce our emissions, then we're only going to end up with a 50-50 chance of avoiding runaway climate change. And these these sort of facts that, that, that came from this report last October are the thing that's kicked all this off. This is what sent uh, Greta Thunberg to sit in front of the Swedish parliament. Um, that kicked off a whole um, youth movement that's absolutely huge. I mean, it's big, It's bigger than the Extinction Rebellion movement. Uh, in September, there was a sort of nearly a year on big uh, student uh, climate strike among school children and demonstrations on the streets. There, uh, globally, there were about 4 million people demonstrating wow. in September. And most towns and cities across the UK had local demonstrations in the town centre that were, were the biggest they'd ever seen in the town. Um, and I think that is something that that makes it very mainstream. When I speak to people, I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm the co-leader of the Green Party, so people come up to me and talk to me about green yeah. stuff. But the number of people who come up to me in very ordinary situations, on the bus, in the shops, and say to me, my daughter's been on a climate demonstration, or my gran, or my wow. my cousin, or, or my, my workmates went and on strike. It's very, very common now to, for somebody to know somebody who's taken direct action about the climate. And that, I think, is a, is a tipping point in terms of activism, in terms of this issue. And it won't go away after the election. This is something that will carry on, and it's growing. It's been growing for a year, and it'll carry on. Is there, I mean, I presume you have a sense of solidarity with Extinction Rebellion. Is, is there any rivalry there? Do you think, well, you better not start standing candidates? Um, th- I mean, obviously, again, there are there are individuals within Extinction Rebellion who have stood. There were some who stood um, in the European elections um, as independents, and that they're completely free to do that. They're all, all tactics are available, uh, and I must say they are trying all of them, and I don't agree with all of them. So, what what other tactics don't you agree with? Um, things like flying drones at airports. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a health and safety freak in the first place. <laughs> like, in that's general. Good. That's a good thing. <laughs> we went to a repair... We, we, we looked at <coughs> a policy the other day where we were um, pledging to put repair cafes in every um, town so that you can get things repaired, so you can learn those skills that we've lost for, for mending. And this is something I'm very passionate about. And um, we were we were asked to do some drilling with a with a with a um, tower drill um, and I was very much like I'm gonna put my hair back now and uh, put on an apron yes safety goggles <laughs> yeah absolutely um, so yeah um, flying anything around an airport absolutely just yeah you know, don't do that you, you you might think you're in control of this 
thing that you're using to prep. But what if it goes wrong? You yeah. just can't even think about that. And also the risks you take with your own safety near an airport, flying stuff around. I mean, quite apart from if you crash your jumbo jet with other people on it, which would be awful, obviously. But if you're there flying a drone, I mean, you could be shot by the security services. I, I just, yeah, exactly. It's not a, it's not a risk I, I, I think anyone should be taking. So, but, but, but yeah, some, some people decided to do that. And there was a big debate within Extinction Rebellion about doing that as well. It's not like it was decided on. Um, some people just went and did it. And Canning Town, obviously, was a, was a flashpoint for them when they were standing on the tubes... Was it Canning Town where they, there was some of the Extinction Rebellion people on the DLR? Yeah, the, the anger towards people holding up trains in rush hour. Um, again, I, I just don't think that was a, was a good tactic. No, not using the tube is a good thing, is it, from a green perspective? Uh, yes, I mean, but then again, I mean, they're, they're, let's not get into this too much, but their tactics are not just to stand in the way. The, the normal way that Greens would protest and then the places where, so for example, Caroline Lucas got arrested, yeah. literally sitting down in front of lorries that were serving a fracking site. Yes. So that's, that's, that's directly preventing climate yes. change harm being done. Um, whereas Extinction Rebellion's tactics are very much to disrupt in any okay. way. And obviously yeah. in London a disruptive thing to do is to stop public transport as well as to block the roads. So that's there. But I'm not yeah, I'm not going that I that's what I understand there. I'm not trying to get you to, to slag them off. It was just interesting just the, the, the distinction and, and, and the uh, Yeah no with, with the distinction in the rebellion I suppose. I've been involved in um campaigning on the climate and um, and direct action for some time. I used to work with road campaigners. And again, so it's, it's, it's interesting to me, but maybe not to your listeners. Oh, no, I think it's fascinating. And I think people are genuinely interested in not just the green agenda and how you get the public's attention and how you change hearts and minds, but also the, the principal differences in the different types of protests that different movements are prepared to do or not. I yeah, think it's and, fascinating. And going back to politics, um, if I may, yes, of course. <laughs> the general election, um, there is there are important distinctions between us and other parties. We are much more about devolving power, about the grassroots, about um, helping people to do things for themselves. Um, if you compare the um, the Labour proposals for, for a green industrial revolution, for yes. example, which puts in less money than, than our plans, um, but also if you if you read through the document, and there's an excellent speech I saw by John McDonnell, um, it's all like committees who will decide and, and and that kind of thing. It's very sort of hierarchical and, and top down. And our uh, Green New Deal has a whole chunk of the money that's going directly to local communities to decide for themselves what to do. Um, and we're not prescribing how decisions will be made. We've not got this sort of top-down series of, of committees and um, sort of decision makers and all of that kind of thing. It's very much empowering people to, to, to act for themselves. And that's that's the difference in our, in our general approach to things. But someone has to take a decision somewhere. There would be a committee or an individual responsible for but it comes know, to leave upwards, the money in the street. But it comes not downwards, you see. So that people organise for themselves what committees they want rather than we're, we're saying there will be a regional um, engagement forum or whatever. I see it a lot with Labour councils. Um, they can't understand why we're not happy that, that something's being imposed on, a, on somebody top down when actually it's the, it's the character of it that we're, we're objecting to more than the outcome. Because Labour promised a Green New Deal as well. I mean, they're, they're using very similar language to you and Jeremy Corbyn is someone that probably a lot of your members and, and voters would, would identify with and, and probably quite like. He's certainly more towards us in terms of... Um, being on the left in terms of wanting to um, 
redistribute wealth. Our, our, our manifesto arguably does that more than the Labour manifesto. Um, but yeah, as I say, there's a there's a difference between us and Labour on that. We want to give everyone um, a universal basic income, for example, and obviously that is intended to uh, eliminate poverty. It's a basic income everyone's entitled to. It replaces the very conditional welfare system, which which successive governments have have made worse. I remember the Labour government. Um, of uh, sort of 2003ish i think it was um were putting these horrendous posters up saying like dob in your neighbor for for ben- being a benefit cheat and things like that like we'd eliminate the whole concept of of that um by giving a a, a basic income to people and i think that is that is a very different thing is it empowers people it gives people choices and for us it's it's as much about that about freeing people to, to make their own choices about how to live their lives and taking away the conditionality and the dependence on asking the state for money that it's just coming anyway um, as it is about eliminating poverty in a very material sense it would be about £80 a week I think £89 uh, £89 it's full rate and that would go to everyone Yes. Millionaires and billionaires would get it. Absolutely. Richard um, Branson would be able to claim his universal basic income. Yes, even people who are relatively well off, like, for example, MPs, could yeah. lose their jobs all of a sudden and then be, uh, be, <laughs> have this as their, as their safety net. And that is the absolute idea of it. I mean, I, I understand the point of, of universality that everyone has buy-in and then you, you eliminate the stigma. But just in terms of an economic effect, don't you just reinforce inequality if you give everyone the same? Uh, no, no, because I mean, if you if you earn a certain amount, then uh, it, it, you're paying more in tax, but it's still there. If you stop earning a certain amount, it's there as a as a safety net. So uh, we, we it pays it pays for itself within our um, tax structures. Um, it's partly through uh, consolidating income tax um, into one. Uh, system one rate so people can't hide their income as, not, as dividends and capital gains it all goes into one part but it wouldn't be one it, it, it would still be a progressive income tax system yes. you wouldn't have a flat tax no 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 it would be the same the same sort of rates as it is now yes. um and people yeah no one would be able to hide their money in, in say capital gains which is at a lower rate or dividend tax which is at a lower rate um so everybody's paying that those higher rates then kick in a, a, a sooner um, point for people who are earning uh, a lot through these different mechanisms. So we, we'd raise about 20 billion of the 78 billion that we need for the um, basic income through that, through progressive taxes. And then we've also um, got a carbon tax in mind. And then obviously people with higher carbon lifestyles would pay more. And that's, again, is, is, is the wealthy, not, not the poorest people who have got the higher carbon lifestyles. In terms of the UBI, the universal basic income, it's something, again, you've been ahead of the curve on. It's been a pledge of yours at multiple general elections now. And it felt like it was something that people like John McDonnell were actively considering. I mean, do you, do you talk to the Labour Party about it? Do you, do you sense that they're open to this idea? Um, I've certainly been at um, forums where um, Labour people have talked about it. Um, same, same with the four-day week, for example. We put that out two years ago, and now they're they're considering it. Um, but it's not fully n- neither that nor, nor universal basic income is in their manifesto this time. Um, and I'm very pleased. I mean, you say it's been our policy for a long time, but usually in general elections we aren't putting it forwards as the policy to be introduced. And this time we we are. And and I'm very pleased that we've done yes. that. We've done a lot of work on our tax and spend policies in the last couple of years since the last general election. And, and it's there now and it's costed. And we say we'll get to that full rate of £89 by 2025. And we'd introduce it immediately at a low rate so they get everyone in the system and, and receiving a small amount. 
I wonder with um, obviously the Green Party, you, you exist for multiple reasons to get elected and to, to have a voice uh, on the floor of the House of Commons and hopefully maybe one day even form a government uh, so that you can implement your manifesto in full, but also uh, perhaps to influence other parties as well and, and, and nudge and shock the system into adopting your ideas and you would see that as a positive thing. I wonder if, just to come back to Corbyn, whether he is, a, he is simultaneously such an opportunity for you, but, but, but such a threat in that at the last election, you know, your, your vote went from 1.1 million in, in 2015 to around half a million in 2017. Most of those votes probably went to Jeremy Corbyn. On the one hand, you've got this powerful advocate on the brink of being, becoming prime minister who, with a four day week, with a Green New Deal, with things like that, would would potentially present a huge opportunity to the Green Movement, but also he's depriving you of votes at the same time. I mean, do you have mixed emotions about it? Um, I mean, obviously, 2017 was a very um, special election. Um, It was a snap election uh, like this one, and I'm not not sure many of us were expecting it. This time, there's been more of a lead-in, and we've been doing an awful lot of work on our policies and campaigning since then. So I feel like we're more of an established um, part of the the picture now. Certainly, uh, in this election, I... And Jonathan Bartley, my co-leader, and Caroline Lucas have been included in in all the big sort of interview rounds in the in the debates with the, the parties. Yes, um, we've struggled in the past to do that, so I think we are we are recognised now as a voice who's had an influence. So the fact that we've got a Labour Party who's taken up some of our things it reinforces the idea that we're a valuable part of the um, the conversation. So I think overall it's positive, and obviously um, in terms of opening up the door to even more of our ideas the fact that some of them get taken up by other parties just lets us do that i certainly yeah. find that in uh, the london assembly which is my day job uh you know, we we've been working since 2016 to put in things into the program of sadiq khan that was in my, our manifesto and not his yeah. and some of the things he's taken up are things like campaigning for rent controls, giving ballots to residents um, on estates rather than having their homes demolished without their permission. And so now, going into the next election, 2020, where I'm standing for mayor again, uh, I can take it to the next step with these. I'm not just still asking for the same things as 2016 because some of them have got done. So that's, that's, that's the way we work. Just on London specifically, and I, I'm aware that so many people who listen to this podcast don't live in London, uh, and I don't want it to be London-centric, but just in terms of the challenge it, it faces, particularly in terms of air quality, I moved here from Nottingham 10 years ago, and I've noticed the difference in my asthma since I moved here. I've had more chest infections than I've ever had. I've needed more antibiotics and more steroids. I'm currently taking another dose, because the, and I'm convinced it's linked to air quality. You can taste the air in London sometimes. I mean... I would want, I mean, I, I wonder if in London, you know, we've got this ULES ultra low emission zone, whether that's enough, whether you just ban cars altogether, apart from ones that are necessary for business, where you've got freight and taxis and something, just ban all the rest from, say, a, a two mile square in the centre of town. Certainly, I've been working an awful lot on this, and you're completely right. The air in London tastes bad. It looks bad. If you go up a hill yeah. and you look down on London oh, on a higher pollution day, there is a, a pool of brownness, and that is the nitrogen dioxide yeah. that we're all breathing in and swimming in, and that's bad for your health in so many ways. Um, King's College have been studying uh, children in primary schools in high pollution areas and seeing direct effects on their lung growth. And if you've got smaller 
smaller lungs as the old yeah, as you grow up and you get older, that has long term health effects that stops you being able to withstand all kinds of infections and, and challenges. Um, so this is really, really serious problem. Uh, the mayor's ultra emission zone uh, is currently in central London only. And he's proposing to increase it to the north and south circular in 2021. This this isn't enough. And um, if I had been mayor from 2016, what we'd have by now is a, is a London-wide scheme. And it wouldn't be banning cars, but it certainly would be a, a smart scheme that looks at the actual emissions from cars. At the moment, the ultra-low emission zone lets certain cars in and not others. And the ones that are allowed in can drive around as much as they like. And that doesn't make any sense to me. You need something that, that looks at the emissions, the distance travelled, uh, the time of day. Something that's smart, that actually is changing people's driving habits, changing people's cars um, in an integrated way. And, and we could have had that basically starting by now, if we'd started work on it in 2016. Uh, it is something that, that increasing numbers of Groups, people like the the you know the the engineers, uh, the rural colleges of the yes. various engineering groups, um, the the town planners, Centre for London have put out a report saying we need this um, in the last year. So this is becoming again the thing that is the policy that everyone is asking for, and we will end up doing it in the end. But it would have been much quicker just to vote green and get it done in the first place. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In terms of winning hearts and minds, in convincing a sometimes sceptical public that the environment should be at the top of their list, what have you found are the most effective ways to cut through to people who previously might say, not that they're climate change deniers, but just they say, well, look, the NHS is my top priority, Brexit obviously needs sorting, but once I've got home and I've got a family and I've dealt with all the shit that goes on in life, the environment's just down the pecking order. How do you get that to the top of people's minds? What have you found are the most effective campaigns? This has been my challenge from the start for the whole 18 years that I've worked on, on this issue, and it is really difficult there's there's been waves of activism um sometimes when there are um extreme weather events it comes back to people's um notice and, and there is more campaigning and then you get these promises out of the the government um you get david cameron going and hugging a husky yeah. um, and you get some improvements for a little while and then as soon as it drops off the radar as soon as it stops being a top public concern these things get dropped very very quickly um and and it has led to a position now where we are at an absolute turning point we we can choose to keep behaving like that and guaranteeing that that things will get very very nasty in the next few decades or we can we can mend our ways and one of the ways that we've been arguing um for for green issues um to be implemented is that they have so many side benefits so you'll clean up the air um if you insulate everyone's home as, as our green new deal wants to do uh people's homes will be warmer there'll be fewer winter deaths they'll be cheaper for people to heat um these side benefits are also things that are worth doing um, so we put forward the green new deal over 
10 years ago. Caroline Lucas was on this Green New Deal steering group with a quite sort of maverick group of economists who are now quite mainstream, um, arguing for this as an alternative to austerity um, and using the arguments that, that this would pay for itself, that this would have improvements in in things like poverty, child poverty, health, and saying we should do this instead of, of austerity. And obviously, instead of that, we've had 10 years of austerity. We've got child poverty through the roof. We've got people living in cold, damp, mouldy homes. Uh, none of these things have happened. But that has been the way in which we've tried to argue for it in the past. Well, I guess that's lobbying the politicians. I, I, I suppose I mean more when you're on the doorstep or when you're out in the street. What are the what are the techniques what are the messages that you think cut through with ordinary people more um i think i mean the urgency of the urgency now of climate action the fact that children are asking for it that's always been a very powerful way to get people to Mm. take notice um and when you show the the real human cost of climate change around the world that helps as well um but yeah it is difficult because it seems like it's something that that it's a bigger issue. Politicians should be sorting it out. I certainly joined the Greens originally because I learned about climate change at school. It was a, it was a new thing when I was at school that we would have global warming and that would be the big issue. And I assumed politicians would sort it out. And then oh dear. And then when I got to you know the age of I'd, I'd left college and I was working and, and looked around and I saw that this wasn't happening. Uh, that's when I decided I better do something about it and uh, and I think a lot of people still think oh it'll be for someone else to sort out um, but I think we've just got to keep the pressure up and, and keep the pressure on and that is happening now I think it won't go away and in terms of this campaign when you're out on the doorstep and I'm sure you're not just in London all over the country and your role as co-leader are people receptive or do they go look I'm sorry but I've, I'm going to either vote for Boris to get Brexit done or I'm going to vote Labour to stop Brexit or I'm going to vote Lib- for a second referendum rather or I'm going to vote Lib Dem to stop Brexit. Well, a lot of the places I'm going to are, are target seats and, and they now include seats where the Liberal Democrats have stood aside for us and Plaid Cymru have stood aside for us because of the arrangement we've made within uh, what we call Unite to Remain. Yes. Um, and that was something that we've we've done that's that's quite different it's a much more grown-up cooperative way of doing politics i'm so pleased and surprised we got to the end of that process and actually had an agreement because it's not usual for politicians to be able to put aside tribal differences and say actually yes you're going to be the best people to fight this seat and you're going to be the best people to fight this seat and it's really important that we we reduce the tory majority we get a remain parliament to reflect the remain majority that's in the country but we've we've done it. So the places I'm going to <laughs> are places where the green candidate is the best remain voice for the climate who can get elected. They're the one that the one that can beat the Conservatives or or win the seat um, off off a off a Labour um, candidate who's not going to be the strong voice that you need. And do you think, you know, looking at the poll, the canvassing returns you've got? I mean, obviously you have uh, you have um, Caroline down in Brighton. Uh, could you add a seat at this election, do you think? I hope so, yes. Would that be Isle of Wight? Um, at the moment, uh, Bristol West is looking very good for us. Okay. Um, Carla Denyer, who is our candidate for Bristol West, is the councillor who put the first climate emergency motion in Europe uh, this time last year, following the IPCC report. And now there are hundreds and hundreds of councils in the UK alone. There are whole cities, whole countries now. Parliament has passed a climate emergency motion. She 
invented that whole concept. She is an absolute climate leader, and Bristol are very lucky to be able to elect her this this year. Do you feel? Do you find? I mean, before you came into the studio, I, I've got a bottle of Highland Spring here that is obviously single-use plastic. You're and not going to use it I, just the once, though. I hid it under the desk, so I was like, <laughs> I've immediately felt a pang of guilt that I was going to be drinking from single-use plastic in front of you. I mean, do you find that people are sometimes uh, sort of aware of themselves when they're talking to you about green issues, that they might be wearing the wrong thing or drinking from the wrong thing? Yeah, uh, but we're not the green police. We're not here to, <laughs> we're not here to tell you off. Not until you get um, elected. That's not the point. See, we're about system change, and that's why, you know, again, I'm really proud of our manifesto because it actually has... Big changes to to taxes, to investment, to transport, um, to democracy. There's, these are the system changes that we need. There's a there's very much a limit to what individuals can do. Obviously, you know, don't 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 go crazy. Don't take it too far. Um, but really, it isn't about individual. Uh, lifestyles. It's about making those green choices easier, cheaper, uh, making sure that the the right policies are in place to enable you to to live a low carbon uh, life. And and you'll never manage that on your own. It's it's way too hard in the current system. So the system needs to change. Everyone has uh, campaign war stories. I mean, do you do you ever do you ever come across some characters when you're knocking doors? And how do people react to you sometimes? Um, of course. Uh, I mean, one thing about knocking doors is. Uh, almost everyone is really nice yes. in real life, particularly when you knock on their door rather than interact with them on, say, Twitter, for example. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, in the local elections, for example, I was I was out knocking um, for candidates in the North East where we won quite a few new councillors on new councils in the North East. And, yeah, knocking on doors of people who were super Brexit supporters um, and saying to them, you know, hello, you know, I'm from the Green Party. Like, well, I, I want Brexit, actually. And I said, that's OK. I'm here about the local elections. Have you seen our candidates? Um, don't they work hard? Uh, is there anything else we can do for you? And they'd, they'd start talking like a normal person and, and we'd have a nice chat. And you can set aside your differences with anyone um, and and just, yeah, interact in a normal way. And when you're on, when you're on their doorstep, people are genu- generally super and it's a very life-affirming experience. I always found that on the whole. I mean, I had a couple of people threaten to set their dogs on me. Back in the day when I used to work for the Labour Party, but maybe that was just... I've never door knocked as a Labour candidate. Um, No, maybe maybe it's different different for Greens. Maybe it is different. (laughs) Maybe it is. Do you think people see you as a nice party? Do you think that's one of the advantages you have? Yes, definitely. Um, and I think they see us as as principled and and trustworthy. Uh, where Where we... struggle is with credibility um, and that's that's unfair because a lot of it is to do with um, the system that we have in this country our vote share is very similar in other countries where we have big chunks of, of MPs in the parliament and we form um, part of the government in lots of places um, you know I've, been, I've spoken with the Iceland uh, prime minister who's a green recently we had the Finland foreign minister come who's a green uh, in Germany we have a huge amount of influence on on the government and have done for a very long time you remember the the foreign minister from the greens who was arguing against the Iraq war many years ago um, our vote share, um, for example, in the European elections of twelve and a half percent, that is what we would get under a, a fair voting system. And and people are you know in, a, in in a general election, our vote gets squeezed because it is about two parties. That's how the system works. But but we're working. I say we're working with other parties to try and make it clear that in some seats now, Greens are the candidate that you can vote for to to really make a difference. And and I think we've we've 
hopefully done a good job in this election that can work against that. But it's 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 a ridiculous system. It's unfair to voters, most of whom are in safe seats and could never make a difference to which MPs are elected. I'm sure it's a pleasant thing to be seen as a nice party. I always felt... It, th- it was slightly patronising to see you as that because I've met Green Party members who are very passionate people who, uh, I mean, I remember, I remember doing an event down in Brighton, I think it was around the 2010 election, and I interviewed Caroline and a Lib Dem guy and a Labour guy in front of an audience. And I was shocked at how aggressive a lot of the Green members were. And it was a kind of pre-Corbyn Corbynism. There were a lot of really angry people then. It, it, it was a wake-up call to me that actually, I'd always thought all Greens are kind of, you know, lentil-eating hippies, and I hadn't kind of uh, uh, really given you the credit that actually well, some of you are livid. We're, we're principled and we're passionate <laughs> about our principles. And and back in those days, I mean, that was a, that was the election where Caroline Lucas was first elected. That's right, yeah. So we had all of that, oh, don't let the Tories in kind of yeah, stuff yeah. that was going on. Um, and of course, that was not true, and so some of our Greens were a bit you know, fed up about that. Um, and then you know, the following election, 2015, we were the only party arguing against austerity, uh, the only the only party asking for investment in public services, and and all the 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 consensus with the other parties during that election was maddening. You know, you you felt like being passionate and saying, "No, this is completely the wrong direction. Why is no one listening?" Um, but yeah, we got we got a very strong vote in that election for for taking that principled stance. And what's your relationship with your membership like? I mean, every party leader. Has it can have a difficult relationship with their members because the members will sometimes want you to go further and faster. How do you manage that as a leader? How do you keep the whole party on side? Um, we have a different approach to leadership than other parties too. So, like, my job is not to keep the, the members in line or anything like that. My, I'm a representative oh, a of, of a very democratic party. So uh, all our policies go through quite a rigorous process through through conference. They're voted on by members, uh, putting the, the manifesto together. You know, it's, this is what I mean it was good that we started in 2017 because everything all the big new ideas need to go through this rigorous Mm. process with our with our members but once you've done that then you're then you're sorted you've got the absolute support you know you know you've got the support of members to do that there'll always be some who say I'm not happy with this we should change it Sean Berry's not going far enough um, no, certainly not in policy terms. Um, on the Unite to Remain agreement, for example, there, there are some people who are really worried about that and, and don't think it's the right thing. Uh, but for what reason? That, that you're standing aside in some seats? There's there's the question of whether or not we're, we're, we're allowing everyone to vote green who, who wants to. Okay. Um, there's also the question of the fact that we've, we talk to the Liberal Democrats um, mm. who do not have the best record um, in terms of government. Um, so... There is that that issue of um, what we what we're doing there, and I'm stressed to everyone that it's not a merger that we've ag- we've agreed to do this for for remain reasons yeah. uh, to change the balance of parliament in respect of this particular issue. We've also got um, agreement that there would be climate action, that we would do something to fix democracy um, as a group of MPs if we we managed to get elected. Um, but but again, in order to to get that agreement made, not only was it difficult and, and, and intricate with the leaders talking amongst themselves of the different parties it was also important to go through processes within the party so every local party that has stood aside has voted to do that um, all our different governance bodies had to sign everything off at every stage so there's a, there's a lot to work through there And you have a fascinating leadership model we have two leaders, two co-leaders yourself and Jonathan Bartley 
Is there any sort of division of labour there? Do you say, well, I'll handle the trade stuff, you handle, say, public services, I'll do the economy, you do defence or...? Certainly. I mean, we are a, we're, a, we're a job share. We stood as a team. Um, and part of the reason for that is I've got a, a job as the London Assembly member. Um, Jonathan has family commitments. He has a son who's disabled. He has lots of childcare issues. So we share out the time. Um, so there's that aspect to it. So one, whoever's on shift has to cover all the issues. But we certainly have um, issues that we prefer to talk about. I mean, I'm obsessed with housing. Um, I do a lot of work on uh, civil liberties. Um, so those are those are issues where if that crops up, I'm putting my hand up. And, and how do you split the time? Is it different every week or do you go, I'll do Monday to Wednesday, you do Thursday to Sunday? It's a little bit more flexible than that. Uh, <laughs> Flexi time. Yeah, but, but we certainly do try and try and share out the time between us. And, and it, it, make, sure it must occasionally got... be an admin nightmare where if you've got two leaders, people are approaching one and not the other, stuff's getting missed. Yes, uh, a lot of a lot of media try and arrange things by text message, which is just unhelpful if you're if you're not on. It's like, please, can you contact the press office? Um, so yeah, there's there's there are, the admin is is a constant challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for any leader, for anyone, yes, anyone who's busy. Um, please send me your time management methods. Would you recommend it to other parties? Would you say co-leaders? Would, do you think we can ever live in a world where we have a co-prime minister? I think that would be absolutely fantastic. We've certainly been uh, leading on a campaign to get uh, job share MPs. Uh, I think the 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 way that MPs work, their hours. Caroline Lucas has written about it in yeah. in her book Honourable Friends question um, mark about the 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 punishing schedule there is in Parliament and the way it's kind of an endurance test for people uh, that obviously excludes people from from being able to stand if they have um, commitments that um, like like childcare or um, disability or, or anything else that might take them away from the job some of the time and and we do need to be more flexible in order to be more inclusive um, you face other pressures as a, as a green politician that maybe other politicians on the left can identify with but you were monitored by the National Domestic Extremism and Disorder Intelligence Unit in 2016. Well, it's actually... I mean, I did, I did my, my um, subject access, ex, access request to the police. Um, Jenny Jones was found to be on a list of domestic extremists. Jenny Jones is our, a baroness now, yeah. um, but she was a London Assembly member before me. So so I, for the mayoralty before you did? She did, yeah. In 2012, she was our mayoral candidate as well. And so she put in the request and got quite an alarming result. So I put in the same request to see if I what police databases I was on. Um, and it, it's not clear from the response which database, but they had stored information. For example, I'm a I'm a humanist, um, and I work with the Humanist Association yeah. on things. And the Pope was given a state visit, and we objected to the Pope being a given a state visit. And we wrote a letter to the Guardian, so it was me and like Stephen Fry and Terry Pratchett and various other people. Those are the heathens. Yes, and um, that was noted on a police database, and I've no idea why. Um, the Maybe other th- they agreed. The other thing, yes, uh, the other thing they noted was that I stood for a, in a by-election for the council, which, as far as I'm concerned, is not illegal. No, it's a sort of odd thing for them to be monitoring. I don't know. I don't know what that was about. And they just give you the tiny expert excerpt about you. So it's quite possible someone else in my circle was, was being monitored, but okay. I don't know. Does that worry you? Yeah. I mean, do, I mean, do and, you ever think... And they shouldn't be keeping information on innocent people. And there's a constant battle with the police about things like data, um, about, um, for example, facial recognition is a fight we've been having for a couple of years now. And, I, you know, the police, they, they see this new opportunity to monitor people and they will 
try and sneak it through without going through the proper legislative process. And we're all really losing patience with this now. Uh, they said they were going to trial it. And so they started using it on the streets in various places. Quite overtly, they were putting out leaflets and things at the same time. Um, but then this trial went on for two years. And they were giving us reassurances that they do independent monitoring of the trial. And then eventually the, the academics who were doing the independent monitoring published a report that was quite damning about the, the impacts on civil liberties, the inability to opt out when it was being used on the street, the lack of information, the lack of accuracy. So they, human rights academics, wrote it up and said, this is a bit of a nightmare for human rights. And the police response was to was to rubbish the study which they'd commissioned and I just find that whole thing incredibly worrying I, would, I had a conversation with the mayor and the police commissioner about this at mayor's question at the, at a plenary meeting of the London Assembly um, shortly before the election and tried to make the point that if we're going to introduce anything like this if any new technology is invented we need to be having the conversation in public about its use to set some principles, to look at the policing principles, look at human rights and put some proper rules in place that are with the consent of the public before they get used at all. And that is not the way the police tend to operate. They like to use it and then see if we complain about it later. Is there, and without wanting to be flippant about it, is there part of you that thinks, this is quite cool, I've got the cops after me? No, <laughs> no, it's it's worrying I'm a rebel. because you know who else does this apply to? Who else yeah. is who else is is potentially being monitored? Monitored? Who might suffer much more serious consequences than? Well, than so I you've do. been on this show now. I might be monitored. <laughs> Maybe I should put in a request. We we all should. I think I've been an, I've been harboring be, an enemy of the state. We should, we should all be able to find out what information people are keeping about us, and we should all be very alert to to the to the dangers of this, um, because you know it's not about. Um, whether or not the people currently in power are good. It's about the potential power we're handing to people who might not be so good in the future. That's that's always a principle to bear in mind. Yes, and at this election, that is something people should absolutely think about. Uh, just in terms of this election then, finally, and I know it's really hard, and I know there's a, just about a week to go, do you have any sort of prediction for the outcome? No, of course not. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but do you think, OK, you can be as vague as you like, do you think it will be a good night for the Green Party? I hope so. I think I think we've already had a very strong effect on this election, um, and we should come out of this with uh, commitments and, and people in Parliament who are willing to do more of the things that we want them to do. I'd love there to be more Green MPs. Uh, we're the ones who can hold all the other parties to account properly on on the issues in which we've we've shifted them in recent recent months and years. But yeah, we, we we really do need those more green MPs. But but regardless of that, I think we've had a had a good election and we've had an influence. Sean Berry, thank you so much for coming in. Cheers. Thank you. Well, there you go, Sean Berry, and it remains to be seen uh, whether the Greens can add another seat, whether that Remain Alliance will help them. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Please share it through word of mouth and through social media, email, write to people about it. Please leave a review on whatever iTunes or Spotify, whatever platform you listen to. Um, In the show notes of this, uh, I have put a link if you would like to make a subject access request, as Sean did, uh, via the Information Commissioner's Office. There is a link that you can click and find out, potentially, what information the police have on you. Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday for the final week of the election where I've got some brilliant guests lined up. Try and enjoy the campaign if you can. And I'll see you in a few days.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.